Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. We are approaching the holiday season, and I thought I keep well. I keep getting emails from people saying. Joe, what do you recommend for, I don't know, boots? Or Joe, what is your recommended coat for dog training purposes? Or Joe, what collars do you use? Or I don't know, stuff like that. And so I thought, why don't I have an episode where I just tell you all my favorite products in every different category that there is related to gun dog training and maybe give you some ideas for presents or gifts for loved ones and family. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have a little kind of bonanza of an episode where I just recommend away. And the thing I should say here is that I am not being paid to recommend any of these products. So they are completely independent recommendations based on what I like. And I should also say that I have tried quite a few different products in some of these categories, and some of them have been complete disasters for me. So I look forward to sharing all of that with you in a minute. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. All right, so let's start with footwear and what I like when it comes to footwear. So there is kind of, well, maybe two, maybe three categories of footwear that I like when it comes to training and working dogs. And I think the three categories of footwear that I need are a welly of some description, which comes up to, you know, knee height, a a short boot, which is kind of like ankle height for the summer, and a a sort of really sturdy, durable hunting, hiking laced up boot which is going to give me loads of ankle support on moorland and stuff like that so those are the three categories and the wellies i'll use on a sort of daily basis when it's not really hot (laughs) and when it's wet because they're just easy to put on and off so whilst your lace-up boots your hiking boots are going to give you a lot more ankle stability and they're probably a lot more comfortable and a lot better for your feet Let's face it, they take a long time to, you know, get all those laces where they should be. And we don't always have lots of time and do this on a daily basis, putting them on, taking them off when you're just out for like an hour and a half. And when you don't really need that kind of boot, well, it's just too much time, frankly. So so I prefer wellies <laughs> on a daily basis. And I'll give you my recommended wellie in a minute. And then the short boot is kind of for the summer when it's a bit ludicrous to be walking around in knee-high wellies, but you just need something that you can just slip on your foot really easily. And it's a little bit waterproof in case there are a few puddles around, but, you know, it doesn't need to be, you know, super spectacular footwear, which is going to see you through the bumps of moorland, which is what your ankle um, sort of, your hiking or hunting ankle length boots are for with the, with the lace-ups. Because if you're going to be out all day for like seven hours, eight hours, it's really good important to make sure that your ankles have that stability and that your feet are wearing the best stuff that they can wear to be out for that long on rough terrain. So those are my three categories of footwear. So wellies, I have tried a lot of wellies over the years. I have tried pretty much all the wellies that you see recommended commonly when you ask for wellie recommendations (laughs) on Facebook of other people who work their dogs. And my preferred wellie is actually not one of the most expensive wellies out there. It's muck boots. So I really like the neoprene muck boots. And 
specifically the ones that are insulators. So the ones that I have at the moment, I'm not sure if these are still available, but the ones I have at the moment are the Arctic Sport muck boots. So they're kind of extra insulated and I highly recommend them. They're really comfortable. They're really warm. And the thing that I like about muck boots and why I find they set they set themselves apart a little bit from most other wellies is the ankle stability. So most wellies have rubbish ankle stability, as you might have realized. <laughs> like your ankle just goes over too easily if the ground is is at all bumpy. And the reason that I like muck boots is they have this kind of rigid um, rigidity around the ankle area. And then as you go up the leg, they go into that soft neoprene stuff. But around the ankle, at least in the Arctic sport muck boots, there's this kind of rigid layer which gives you some ankle support and makes it less likely that your ankle is going to go over so i like them for that reason and yeah they're comfortable they're insulated you are going to have to replace them probably it depends how often you wear them but every couple of years maybe every three years they do tend to get holes in them so they're not like forever wellies but i find them i really like them i just go back to them time and time again every now and again i get tempted to try another welly and i just find that my ankle goes over so um i've just tried some some idols if that's how you see them um and they just my ankles just have gone over in them so i can't wear those anymore i'm just gonna have to use them for going into the yard or garden so other boots so in terms of boots to wear on moorland i have mindel dover extreme gtx boots i don't know how to pronounce that by the way but i hope that makes sense to someone um mindel dover spelled d-o-v-r-e extreme gtx boots and they are, they're the business. They're really good. I love them. They're incredibly comfortable. They lace up really tightly around your ankles and give you all that support that you need for Moorland. And they're just fantastic. They're a little bit of faff to put on and take off. So, you know, if I was just going out for 40 minutes or something with my dogs, I wouldn't bother putting them on. I would use my wellies. And then my sort of ankle length wellies. Again, I go back to mock boots for those. So they make lots of kind of ankle, ankle height wellies, which are fine for you know, the summer and stuff, if you just want to put something on, if there's a couple of puddles around. So those are my recommendations for footwear. Hold the line. So next let's talk about outer garments and coats and things like that. So the my main kind of general all-purpose coat, which I just come back to again and again, I've tried other coats, but I keep coming back to it, is the Barber Beaufort um, jacket, which is the game pouch at the back. And do you know, it's just about, for me, the pockets and where they are and how big they are and that they can contain what they need to contain and that there's this game pouch at the back where you can just put anything. You could probably get two, possibly three pheasant in it and you can get probably six dummies or bumpers in there. Um, and it's, it's just really convenient. And also you can put your poo bags in there. So you can, you can just pop your poo bag there at the entrance of your game pouch. You don't have to walk around holding that either. So however I look at it, I've, I've come to the conclusion that whatever coat I have needs to have this kind of pouch thing at the back. And that's really an important feature for me when I look for not just the, a general all purpose coat, but any sort of dog training coat. I just find that so useful. I have found that the quality of the Barber Beaufort jackets has deteriorated in in recent years it does seem to me that they've become a little bit of a fashion icon and as that's happened the sort of quality and the durability of what they're making has gone down a little bit but despite that i still come back to them because they just seem to tick most of the boxes most of the time so that would be my kind of recommendation barber beaufort jacket as a sort of general all-purpose coat and it's a wax jacket so when the weather is really cold, like cold, cold, and or you're going to be out for a long time in it, I like the Deer Hunter Mufflon jacket, which is really well insulated. Again, it has all the pockets in the right places. And I just highly recommend that. It's just, it'll keep you warm and toasty, whatever the weather is like. So that's the Deer Hunter Mufflon jacket. In the summer, I, oh, by the way, the Deer Hunter's also got a pouch. In the summer, I really like the Herta trainer's vest or the Pinewood vest. I actually slightly prefer the Pinewood vest because I found that the seams on the Herta trainer's vest come unstuck a bit. So they've been glued instead of sewn. At least they were on the Herta trainer's vest that I had. And after a few gentle washes in the washing machine, the seams came, kind of came unstuck a little bit because they were glued. So I highly recommend the Pinewood vest over the Herta Trainers vest. But when in terms of pockets and, you know, 
that pouch <laughs> that I find so essential at the back, both of them meet those criteria. So Pinewood vest, Herta trainer's vest, and they're both sort of vests without, obviously without sleeves, that's what vest is, but they have some sort of um, water resistance to them. So they will kind of protect you from a bit of a shower. Obviously, they don't cover your arms, but you know, for summer, they're a really great vest to have. So the thing to say about the summer months and dog training is that you have all the need for pockets and storage places that you have in the winter, but you just don't want to be wearing so much stuff because you get hot. So it's about trying to find something which is cool and allows air to circulate, but also provides you with all those pockets and storage places that you need. So that would be my recommendation when it comes to coats. Hold the line. So training equipment, when it comes to dummies slash bumpers, depending on where you live, you will call them different things. <laughs> I really like the airflow bumpers and they're kind of my main sort of, you know, it's they're my go-to bumper dummy, <laughs> bumper slash dummy, um, the airflow bumpers. So they are BPA free. So if you think about the amount of time your dog well, the amount of times that your dog goes and retrieves a bumper or dummy and has it in their mouth, you want to make sure that they're not ingesting BPA and, you know, toxic plastic stuff. So I really like the care which the manufacturers of the airflow bumpers have taken to make sure that their product doesn't have BPA in it. That your dog is not over time, over years and years and years of many repeated moments of carrying dummies in their mouth going to be somehow absorbing this. So airflow bumpers, they are... US based. And the other thing that I like about them is that they're shaped in a way that they sort of dip into the center. So this kind of encourages the dog to hold the bumper or dummy in the middle instead of by the end, because the dog just figures out that it's more comfortable to hold it in the middle. It's thinner in the middle, so it's easier to put in their mouth if they pick it up in the middle. And through habit and repetition, the dog just gets used to picking them up in the middle and is then more likely to sort of transfer that across to other bumpers and dummies, which are not shaped in this way because they just kind of got into the habit of always picking them up in the middle. So I like them for that reason as well. I'd always tend to favor white bumpers and dummies for most training purposes. It's really only if you don't want your bumpers or dummies to be seen that you would not use a white bumper or dummy. So if you were practicing the dog using their nose and hunting up an area maybe because you wanted to practice your hunt whistle or something or your, or your verbal cue for hunt, then you would probably want bumpers or dummies that are orange or green and not very visible for the dog. But for most other purposes and the vast majority of, of training exercises, you're going to want white dummies. And so if, you know, if I'm choosing dummies, I'm always going to have way more white bumpers or dummies or even black and white ones. So they kind of flash in the air and have a sort of strobe effect as they're thrown. Um, then I would orange or green ones. So Put the emphasis on the white ones if you're not sure. Um, so those may be my dummy recommendations. When it comes to swimming, I do have a very specific dummy slash toy, which I really like when it comes to encouraging the dog to have confidence swimming further. So it's called the Rogue's Lighthouse, which is spelt R-O-G-Z or, or Z, <laughs> depending on where you live. Um, so the Rogue's Lighthouse. And what it is, is red and white a red and white striped um, toy, which is kind of long like a bumper or dummy, but it's weighted really heavily on one end. So what happens when you throw it is it floats vertically in the water and sticks up about a foot above the water. So so the dog can see this from the shore from a very long way away. And because it's weighted, it throws really far as well. So you can easily throw it a really good distance. So the dog then gets used to swimming for considerable distances because they can see where they're heading to. So if you throw a toy which is flat and which the dog can't see from the shore, they need to be much more advanced and you have to have much more confidence that they're going to find something if they go out where you're asking them to go because they can't see anything and their own eyes are telling them that there's nothing there. So it helps them get into the habit of swimming greater distances and having the confidence that if they can do that, there will be something out there. If you start out your longer um, retrieves your longer marks with something that floats in this vertical way so it's more visible you can think about it as being like like a white dummy on the on the ground on the grass on the land your vertical dummy is the equivalent thing in water it's something which a dog can see from a long distance away and that gives them the confidence to head for it so that would be my recommendation if you want a sort of swimming dummy recommendation you don't need loads of those just like a couple of those would be good um, so that's the rogues lighthouse 
So then we're going to move on to sort of dog stuff the dog wears, really. <laughs> so stuff the dog wears. Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me and apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's Whistle Pause. Let's get back to the show. In terms of slip leads, so there's a couple of recommendations that I have for slip leads, and it depends on the stage that your dog is at. One is just a type of slip lead rather than a specific manufacturer or or brand, and that is what we call a limited slip lead. So a limited slip lead has got a stopper on it around the dog's neck, so it doesn't continually tighten. It gets to a certain point, and then it it stops tightening. It doesn't get any tighter. But it looks, to anybody around you, just looks like a regular slip lead. So anyone looking at you, unless they look really closely at your lead, isn't going to really take much notice of the fact that your dog's wearing a limited slip. But it does mean that your dog is effectively wearing a flat collar and a leash rather than a noose, a slip lead. So if you've got a dog which um, you, you, you find occasionally they pull or you want to be sure that they're not they're not going to be wearing this leash, which continually strangles them <laughs> around the neck. Uh, but you're out in a sort of gun dog situation and you don't want to be wearing you know, I don't know, harness or even a flat collar. You want to you want to wear the gun dog uniform, as it were, which, by the way, I do think is important for reasons that I've explained in previous episodes. Then you probably want to be looking at a limited slip and that will enable you to do that. The other, if you want a kind of um, quote unquote normal slip lead recommendation, I like the slip leads that are made by allthingsrope.co.uk, which is obviously in the UK. So if you're Outside the UK, this might not be so useful to you. But the thing that I like about their slip leads is they come with metal a metal eyelet around where the rope slides through. So one big problem with slip leads is that over time they can get quite worn and they can get quite frayed. So as that as the leash runs through the ring over and over and rubs and rubs and rubs on the um, leash, it kind of gets often worn away and frayed and damaged at that point. So the reason that I like the slip leads, which have this metal ring around around that place where that leash where the leash runs through, is that it protects the leash at that point. It doesn't get frayed and rubbed and doesn't deteriorate. So the leash just stays looking like it's always looked the day you bought it, basically. So so I like that. And if you you know live outside the UK and can't get an all things rope dot co.uk slip lead then you can probably find the same thing somewhere else i'm sure other people make it um, around the world the other types of leads and collars that i like for flat collars i really like the easy dog neoprene padded collars i just find that they're more comfortable for the dog's neck or throat to have that kind of padding around them for harnesses i like depends really on the dog but i like the, the perfect fit the dog copenhagen comfort fit air because there's two that are made by dog copenhagen and i like the freedom harness if you have a dog which pulls a lot and you're really struggling with that i find the freedom harness gives you the most control personally i tend to use harnesses a lot with puppies and young dogs and then we kind of transition away from them to flat collars when i'm training and to slip leads when they're working so there's kind of sort of gradual evolution in terms of what i'd be using on 
on the dog. So, and that's, you know, to explain the ins and outs of that would be another podcast episode. So I won't get into all that. I think I may have even talked about it previously, but that's just to let you know. So those are my recommendations for what your dog wears. I guess there is also, I have a little confession to make, <laughs> which is that we do own a rough wear cloud chaser jacket for each dog. And I say that because I know a lot of people poo poo the wearing of coats and jackets for dogs. So obviously they wouldn't be wearing that when they're working. And the reason that they wear it is just for me. It's not for them. It's not to make things comfortable for them. It's so that when we get back home, we don't have wet dogs. So this was a bit of a revelation to me, by the way, guys, I should say. So previously, we'd always go out, the dogs would get all muddy and wet. We'd come home if it was one of those days. And then there would be a lot of dog drying and, you know, mud getting off and mud falling off the dog in the house as the dog dries and all that sort of stuff, which I'm sure everybody knows if they've got dogs and also the smell of wet dog in your house. And <laughs> what I've discovered is if I put rough wear cloud chaser jackets on them, Nobody gets wet. Well, their heads get a bit wet and their legs get a bit wet, but those are really easy bits to dry off, frankly. The main part of the dog's body stays really nice and dry and clean. And when we get home, I just strip the coat off and I just put the coats in the washer for, on a rinse cycle, which takes 10 minutes and they're good to go again. So I, I kind of do recommend them. I feel a little bit embarrassed saying that, but um, it's just made, it makes my life just so much easier, really. So but this is not about, you know, not wanting the dogs to get wet. The dogs get soaked through when they're working. But if I'm just taking them out to exercise them or do a little bit of training um, by ourselves, then, and if it's trucking it down with rain, then I would put this on just for my benefit, really. So other things to recommend when it comes to things that they wear. I really like, if the, if you if you didn't do that, if you didn't put your rough wear cloud chaser thing on your dog and your dog got soaked, or if you've been doing a water session and your dog is soaked afterwards and you want them to dry off quickly, I highly recommend the Sakaro or Sikaro, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, drying vest thing, drying coat. And it's kind of incredible. And they're very expensive, I should say, but we only have one probably for that reason. But they're really brilliant. So basically, they just seem to dry the dog in like 10 minutes. So you just put this, you can have a really soaked through wet dog. You don't need to dry them at all with a towel. You just put this drying vest thing on them and leave it on for like 10 or 15 minutes. And when you take it off, you've got magically ta-da, a dry dog and a damp vest, which then you just hang up. So it's kind of... Um, it's really good, especially if you've got a dog which has got a double coat, a thick coat, and which holds a lot of water. So our HBRs have got um, single coats, Vimeron and GSP. So they don't tend to hold a lot of water and they do dry off quite quickly. Whereas our Labrador with a much thicker coat holds a lot more water and will take a lot longer to dry off. So I just find the this drying vest to be kind of ingenious, really. It's like the dog's body heat dries, dries them somehow. <laughs> so I highly recommend that as well. And then if you do have a dog which, um, you know, you've been out working them and maybe they're a bit cold, but you need to put them in the car for a while and it's cold in the car and you don't really want to put cold, wet dog into the car where they can't move around very much and they're just going to get even colder, then in that situation, I really like a nice sort of fleecy jumper or sweater if you are in the US <laughs> called um, an Equifleece. I like the Equifleece. Um, sweaters or jumpers, which we've just always had that brand. Um, and I just really like them. So I just stick with them really. So yeah, Equifleece, E-Q-U-I-F-L-E-E-C-E. -E -E, and they're based in the UK as well. So I like their kind of uh, pole neck, um, turtleneck, also called turtleneck, <laughs> sweaters or jumpers. So they kind of cover the dog's front legs and they have kind of go up around the neck quite a lot and then they cut away at the back. So if the dog needs to have a wee or something, that's not a problem. So those are my recommendations for things the dog wears. Hold the line. So then we've got the sort of miscellaneous stuff which doesn't fit anywhere else. So there is a little device called the single shot blank firer, which I highly recommend. I'm not sure if this is going to be available anywhere, which isn't the UK, but you can always Google it and find out. And what it is, is a little device which looks absolutely nothing like a gun of any kind. So it does not look like a stunning pistol. It just, I don't know how to describe it. It's kind of a little, a small T-shaped object, 
which you can fire a blank from. And the benefit of that is because it doesn't look like a gun, it's not going to freak anyone out if you're training on public ground, for example, but you make sure there isn't any livestock anywhere near you, you don't want to spook that. Um, but you can um, use it if you just want to, you know, you just need to fire a shot if your dog um, is steady and they put up some game and they're steady and you want to just fire a shot. Or if you're training and, I don't know, you want to practice sit to shot. So there's lots of different uses for it, really. Or if you, I don't know, you're practicing marks and you want whoever's throwing them to fire a shot before they throw, then you can use it in that situation as well. So it's a really kind of handy little little device that you can just pop in your pocket and it's much lighter than a, a starting pistol as well. So it's called the Single Shot Blank Firer. I really recommend that. Um, and treat pouches. My, my favorite treat pouch is the trainer's pouch, which is... Um, they're made in Australia actually, and they're made of silicon. So they're really easy to clean, easy to wash. You can pop it in the dishwasher, no problem. And they last a long time. I mean, they do over time, like we're talking many, many years, sometimes the silicon starts to tear a little bit due to the weight of the treat pouch on your belt or at the sides where you put your hand in and out through the hole. But they do last a really, really good long time before that starts to happen. And they're so convenient in so many other ways. Since we've discovered them, we've not gone back. I think we struggled for a long time with treat pouches. And our best solution, which is still a solution that we like um, at certain points, um, has been the Addis Beakers. There, if you, um, you can find this on Amazon, by the way. Addis Beakers, A-double-D-I-S beakers and they're just like little screw top flasks and if you get two of those you can put one in your left pocket which you can use with your regular treats like for heel work and well for everything really and then in your other pocket in your right pocket you can put some super duper amazing treats in that one for your recall treats so and by the way they fit really well <laughs> in the barber beaufort jacket in the, those deep pockets so you do need when you're thinking about your choice of jackets if you want to use the adder speakers in this way you need vertical pockets so you don't need pockets which are on a slant which are not going to hold the beaker upright you need vertical pockets and they need to be reasonably deep so that you can put your beaker in that also if the pocket is too wide the beaker will fall over sideways inside it and spill your treats inside your pocket you can tell i've experimented a lot with all of this <laughs> So, um, yeah, so basically that, that was a solution, which that was kind of what we would do every day. That was our go-to solution for, for, um, using treats until we discovered the trainer's pouch, which has become a replacement for the, for the treat pouch in the left pocket where we put all the regular treats, but we still have the other Addis beaker, um, in the right pocket for the recall treats along with the trainer's pouch, if that makes sense. So the trainer's pouch has come in two different sizes. There's a small one for kind of, yeah, if you're just going out for an hour, you just want to do a training session with your dog or something. And there's a really massive one if you're going to be out all day and you need, you know, a lot of treats. There's a really massive one as well. So there's two different sizes. Kind of, I've got both sizes because I use different sizes for different needs. So I highly recommend those. There is another treat pouch which I want to give a sort of mention to, even though I haven't actually tried it myself yet because it's always out of stock. And that is the Voila treat pouch. So as in, here you go, Voila, um, <laughs> V-O-I-L-A. And those are made in America. They are in and out of stock. So they appear for a little while, then they get sold out again and they're out of stock for months and months and months. So there's a lot of demand for them seemingly and they can't keep up with the demand. So I've got one of those on order and I'm very interested to see how it's going to compare because it's another silicon pouch like the trainer's pouch. And I'm interested in seeing how it's going to compare to the trainer's pouch. I'm not so sure that it's able to go in the dishwasher because it does have, I think, metal moving parts on it, which are not going to be dishwasher proof, but we'll see. So I'll let you know an update on that when I finally get one. So I think I think we might have covered almost everything apart from the most recommended thing, obviously, is going to be my book. So <laughs> if your loved one does not yet have a copy of Force Free Gundog Training, The Fundamentals for Success, then you definitely want to head over to Amazon and look it up there and make sure you get one in their stocking. <laughs> so it's Force Free Gundog Training, The Fundamentals for Success. So definitely check that out if you haven't already. And I'm going to be taking a deeper dive into that book because I think what I'm going to do with upcoming, the next few upcoming episodes is looking 
in depth at some of the concepts in the first part of that book because I unpack certain concepts which I think are really important for force-free gun dog training. And I just kind of want to make sure that we've covered those so that everybody's up on them because it's really easy to read those chapters once and then to kind of park them and forget about them a little bit. So I want to refresh refresh people's thoughts about them. So I'm going to come back to that quite soon. So yeah, check that out. Amazon, force-free gun dog training, fundamentals for success. Um, so I think <clears throat> that's probably the end of all of my recommendations. I don't think there's anything else here on my list, which I haven't covered. I'm sure people are going to now email me and say, Joe, can you recommend, I don't know, socks or something? But I think if I haven't mentioned a thing in this podcast episode, then I probably don't have strong feelings about it. So there you go. Hold the line. So we've got a few listener questions and I'm just going to start getting through them and we'll see where we get to. <laughs> so the first one is from Vicky and Vicky says, Hi Joe, I'm a first time dog owner of a 20 month male GSP. I'm doing your recall course as his recall has deteriorated massively. We do gun dog classes and training for fun and to build his life skills. He's very, very focused on the environment and hunting. I feel we are in your out of control dog definition. Hence he is on lead or long line all the time. But that's another story. My question is about pointing. I literally have no idea how to cultivate his point and what to do when he does it. I can't seem to find any resources telling me what to do or how to do it. I'd love any tips on how to get started on this. So I did then ask Vicky where she was based, which country she was based in, because obviously um, the expectations when it comes to pointing differ quite a lot from one country to another, as in um, when the dog is allowed to move out of point and whether the dog can relocate by themselves if if they feel that game has moved after they've begun a point and all of that sort of stuff it's quite different depending on which country you're in so yeah vicky was based in the uk so i think the first thing to say which is a bit of an obvious thing but it still has to be said is that pointing is um it's got a massive contribution from genetics obviously so dogs are bred to have a pointing instinct and they can have more pointing instinct or less of a pointing instinct. So some dogs don't have much pointing instinct. And if if you're working with a dog like that, it can be very difficult. You can usually bring it out, but it can be difficult. If you're working with a dog which has got too much pointing instinct, then you might run into the problem of uh, false pointing, which is a problem I have with my GSP, actually. So a dog which does a lot of false pointing will almost be too ready to point. They will get a little whiff of something and point even if you know they're not sure there's anything there yet, or if they are, if they come across a residual scent, they they will point. Which, by the way, a lot of inexperienced dogs will do that just because they haven't had enough of an opportunity to learn that, that it means that there's nothing there. But if the dog has gained quite considerable experience and they're still doing that, then it's not happening due to a lack of experience. It's just something the dog does. So I think that comes from almost having too much pointing instinct. So like most traits or qualities that dogs are bred to have they can fall off the sort of um tightrope as it were one way or the other they can have too much of too much of the quality or, or not enough of the quality and what you really want is that sort of sweet spot in the middle which is hard to obtain sometimes with some of these qualities so that's the first thing i would say is that regardless of of training and of what you do with the dog there's something that the dog is bringing to the table genetically when it comes to pointing and that what that dog is bringing to the table is or should influence to a considerable degree what you do with the dog in training i hope that makes sense so the other thing to say about pointing is that it is part of the sort of sequence of of predatory events which happen for almost all animals which are predators so if you think about a cat stalking a bird or a mouse the cat will slowly slowly stalk up on the mouse or the bird and then they will sort of hesitate and collect themselves for a moment and watch the prey before they launch themselves and grab it so um it's it's a similar thing so it's that moment of hesitation before before the dog launches himself, which is being kind of exaggerated and bred for and and is perceived as a useful trait because obviously it gives humans time to get into position to be able to shoot whatever the whatever is put up when the dog flushes so um yeah so that's where, that's basically where it's coming from now usually 
it's interesting in terms of learning theory, what's, what's going on at the moment of pointing. And this is quite a complicated one. I've thought about this quite a lot and I don't know that I have any absolute answers for you, but I can sort of share with you some of the things that I've been thinking about because my feeling is that it differs from from one dog to another, that there are some dogs which learn that if they go in and try to get the game, that it escapes, it flies away and they've lost it. And so they come across a more game and they go in and try and get it without pointing because they just want to get it because it's, you know, it smells great. Let's go get it. And they lose it. It flies away. And after this has happened for several reps, they finally realize, hey, I found something. If I try and get it, I'm going to lose it. So I'm just going to stay here and point it. And that's where the point comes about. Now, yeah, so that's the first thing to say. This is this is all gets really complicated because there's a whole sequence of events happening here. So I'm going to interrupt this fabulous discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle paws will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend. And I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me, though, because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, force-free gundog training and the accompanying workbook for it which is a planner called the workbook you can get both of these from amazon wherever you live that is the end of today's whistle pause let's get back to the show because what you, what you would want in the uk is you would then when you get up to the dog you'd want to be able to say to the dog get in and t- to tell the dog to, f- to flush. And you want that dog to flush when you ask them to flush. You don't want them to be st- what we call sticky on point and refuse to flush. If they just keep standing there and they're just like, no, I don't want to get in because then I'll lose my lovely game. I'm just going to stay here on point. And you're there going, get in, get in. And the dog is just not getting in. Then that's not great. And you will lose points. And, you know, you want the dog to get in on cue and put the game up. Now, this is obviously very different in North America because the dog does not flush the game the dog would just stand there and continue to stand there while you stomp around in front and put the game up which frankly i think is much easier (sighs) so (laughs) the thing which is difficult is that to get this balancing act of the dog not just going in right away and pointing and yet a dog which really is keen to go in when you ask them to go in that is the difficult thing to achieve I'm not going to talk too much about the flush, but it's hard to talk about the point without talking about the flush because these two things are connected in the sequence and, um, yeah, impact on each other. So basically to get the dog pointing, you want to just take the dog out and run the dog on land which contains game. And, you know, I'm just thinking about your question there, Vicky, where, and where you said that your dog is 20 months old and they're kind of on a long line all the time. Well, your dog isn't going to, I mean, there comes a point, you do have to use the long line until you kind of achieving some degree of reliability. But there does come a point when, especially with HBRs, when they've got so much energy and they really want to run that if you completely deprive them of that, because you know, you're thinking, oh, my dog's not reliable off lead, then 
when when they do finally get to be let off lead, it's really hard to keep in contact with them. Does that make sense? It's like it's almost like their desire, their energy, and their desire to run and to hunt build up and build up because they're so deprived of it. And when you finally give them an outlet for it, it just goes to their head, and they're just poof, they're just gone. So you need to find ways of exercising your dog and providing your dog with physical exercise and also training relating to um, gun dog work. Um, but whilst also remaining in control of your dog. So if, you, if you've got some sort of fenced field or safe area where your dog can run off leash, then that would be a really good thing to investigate more. And then if you think that your dog, you know, if you find an area which is really remote and where you can just really run your dog and, you know, um, let them get the yayas out, that can be good as well. So sometimes if you've got a dog like this you would just let them start to run and you wouldn't give them any cues until they settle down a bit because you don't want to recall them and they don't come back and you can't do anything about it so sometimes it's best to give them a few minutes at the start of the run to get rid of some yayas before you start to um i don't know cue them to turn or try and invite them to work with you so those would be some thoughts for that sort of dog but yeah whilst you're out with your dog your dog was hopefully going to locate game and hopefully going to learn that if they try to get that, it's going to fly and they're going to lose it. And then that dog is going to hesitate and start to develop that moment of hesitation. They they may need multiple experiences of finding game in this way before they start to learn that, you know, if if they if they try and get it right away, they lose it. And then the other thing to say in all of this, which is going to fit on the end of what I was saying before about the flushing side of things, is that you do get some dogs which if you don't shoot over them enough or ever will start to lose interest in hunting and pointing and that side of things and it all depends on what the dog what the dog's prime motivation is and and incentive is for this whole chain this whole sequence of behaviors so some dogs just love to run and love to hunt for the sake of it. And they don't need to ever really have anything shot over them. And they don't need to ever retrieve anything or get game in their mouth and possess the game. They're happy just to run and hunt. And they find that really reinforcing, just running and hunting, and locating game. All of that in itself is reinforcing enough. And I do think that's the case for a lot of pointers and setters, because obviously at, at pointer and setter trials in the UK, um, there are no, there's no retrieving, so the do- so the game is not shot, and the dogs don't have to retrieve. It's all about um, the hunting and the pointing side of things. But there are also dogs that I know who really want that game to be shot, and they want to get it in their mouths, and they want to ret- they want to have it. That's the whole objective that that end reinforcer. Now they don't need to get that every single time, because obviously, if you think about it in terms of variable reinforcement, they. It doesn't need to be like every single time I find game, it gets shot for me and I get it doesn't need to be that frequent, but it has to be frequent enough that it's sufficiently reinforcing that it keeps them highly motivated to hunt and to point. So if you've got a dog like that, which values that and that is their main objective and you don't shoot over that dog for whatever reason, then ultimately you can lose a lot of that interest in hunting and pointing and end up with a dog which isn't so driven and just doesn't show the same yeah it doesn't show the same level of interest so i don't know if that helps at all um but yes it's a lot of this is to do with the dog themselves and figuring out which bit of the sequence they find most reinforcing and trying to work with that so it's a bit complicated but I hope that gives you some some help, some advice there. I do think that if you've got a dog that you want to work on hunting and pointing with, but you're also never letting your dog off their long line, that's a little bit of a conflict there. So you are probably kind of shooting yourself in the foot a little bit in terms of you've got to find some way to be able to give the dog the freedom to hunt and point so that you can then start to work with that and start to build that relationship with the dog. And it may be that they're trailing that long line and you're not far behind and that you're working on the recall, but 
you don't just want to be, you know, clinging onto the end of the long line for dear life and having the dog just totally ignore you and that sort of thing. So try and find a way that you can provide the physical exercise that your dog needs and the exposure to game and the the sort of just running and hunting and pointing side of things because that's how you're going to see your dog develop these skills. It's not you really who's going to teach the dog these skills, especially in the way that the UK and I think most of Europe approaches pointing. It's the game which is going to teach the dog these skills. You can set stuff up with bird launchers and things, but it's not as effective or as useful as wild game will be. So um, yeah, hope that's helpful in some way. And it's a very complicated subject, which I've kind of glossed over really quickly here and haven't gone into too much detail with, but I hope it gives you something to think about, Vicky. Hold the line. So the next question or series of questions is from Morag and pointing does feature a little bit here as well. So Morag says, hi, Joe, um, using the environment for reinforcement, how do you manage situations where the dog offers attention and is released to what seems like a moderately interesting spot but the dog then wants to continue sniffing very intense activity rather than habituate and return to offering attention. If you stand still and keep the lead length static, the dog will eventually stop pulling and offer attention again, reinforce with food or toy, wait for frequent happy offers of attention and release back to the environment. But this seems to then start the cycle all over again. Can be very tricky to predict excitement or interest level. I'm not quite sure if I understand the described situation here, but I think it's based on one of the exercises in my book and um, yeah, an exercise called, it's also on my focus and attention course. It's an exercise called go sniff. I think that is what Mark is referring to. Um, so basically this is a situation where, where the dog checks in with you and looks at you and then to reinforce the dog for that, you release them back to sniff whatever they want to sniff and touch the floor and say go sniff and then the dog wants to continue sniffing which is fine rather than habituate and return to offering attention so the dog can sniff in the go sniff exercise for as long as they want to sniff and if that is quite a long time that's totally fine you just stand there and wait if you have the dog on a leash and the leash is not like a really long long line it's a six foot leash or whatever then the dog doesn't have an infinite um, area to sniff at some point they are going to have sniffed all the interesting things <laughs> in the radius of, of the leash and they're going to get a bit bored and they are going to look back at you and check in with you, at which point you can jackpot them with several treats and before they look away, which is important, release them back again. And you can also, as you release them, take a couple of steps forward so that you release them to new stuff to smell. So eventually, if you do this, you end up with a dog which just almost doesn't want to look away from you. They, they, they really want to just keep looking at you all the time. And when you release them in some weird, bizarre, ironic way, they just do a little token sniff and then look back at you again. So that's kind of what happens when the dog gets really sort of practiced and skilled at this exercise. So I would say it doesn't matter if the dog wants to sniff for a long time in a very intense way. It doesn't mean the exercise isn't working or that you're doing anything wrong. You just need to wait and allow the dog time to habituate to the area within the length of the leash and to decide to look back at you again. So hopefully that answers that one. Remote stop. You also had a question, Morag. Would you expect to be able to use this if the dog is out of sight, e.g. in undergrowth, so you can hear them but not see them? Or if the dog is over a rise and out of sight? Or is a remote stop only used when the dog is in line of sight? No, the remote stop should work whether you can see the dog or not. It it should function. And the reason for that, I mean, there's different, lots of different reasons for that. But if you have a HBR, which I think you do, Morag, then there are two situations when you're going to want the remote stop. One is at the flush of game and or when the dog hears a shot. And the other situation is on a retrieve when you want to handle the dog and cast the dog somewhere. So in the first situation, if the dog, if, if some game has been put up by the dog bustling around when the dog hears that game flush, the sound of the game flushing should cue the dog to sit. So that should all happen completely independently of you. You may not even, you know, blow your sit whistle or give a cue of any kind. The dog flushes game and understands that the flush of game is a cue to sit. Or if you're in North America, cue to 
stop still. Um, equally, the shot, if, for example, a gun 50 meters away or 100 meters away from the dog happens to put up some game and decide it's a good idea to shoot that game, <laughs> you want your dog to be steady and to go into a sit when they hear the shot. You don't want them moving around and risking being unsteady. So when they hear the shot, even if it's not um, happening in relation to anything that they've done, like they haven't pointed or flushed game, it's just game which has been put up somewhere else and somebody else has shot it, you ideally want the dog to sit to that as well. So the dog can't be relying on seeing you or hearing a cue from you or seeing your stop hand in the air or hearing your whistle. You want the dog to be sitting to the flush of game. That's their cue to sit. You want the dog to be sitting to the sound of a shot. That's their cue to sit. And you also want the dog to be able to sit when you blow your whistle as well. And you want to be able to cue the dog to sit. But that's not the only cue. And as the dog gets more experienced with the whole sequence of events, your sit whistle will start to become less and less necessary because um the behavior of sitting will get attached to the flush of the game or the shot. Does that make sense instead? And you won't need to use the sit whistle unless there's a particular circumstance where you want to really stress to the dog that they should sit. Um, so yeah, that absolutely should happen when the dog is out of sight. Now on a retrieve, there might be, there might be a time when you need to handle the dog and you can't see the dog. And this is kind of a more advanced um, type of handling and not everybody trains to be able to handle a dog like this. But for example, if you send the dog on a blind retrieve into heavy cover and as soon as the dog enters the heavy cover, they can no longer see you and you have a sense that the blind retrieve is, I don't know, quite far back and slightly off to the right, for example, and you can see from all the bushes moving that your dog is is hunting you know, too near to you and they're not getting back far enough, then that's a situation where you might blow your stop whistle and you'll see from the, the, the cover not moving anymore that your dog has sat. Um, and then because the dog can't see you, they won't be able to see your back cast. Hopefully in training, you've taught the dog to go back to the word back. So you can just shout back to your dog and hopefully cue the dog in that way to, to go back. Now, some people also train a left and a right cue in that way. I think the back is the most important um, if you're going to train just one of those directions verbally, the 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 back is the mo most important direction because a dog will often hunt and gradually widen the area that they're hunting. And so if it's just left or right of where they are, usually they'll find it. But if it's way back away from you, that's a direction which they often don't choose to go in very readily. And so that's that's the most useful way to be able to send them like go back go away from me um is the most useful thing to be able to to cue them to do so if you want to put the emphasis on one of those three directions the back is the most useful and then you just have to cross your fingers and hope that the dog uses their own natural game finding ability which they should have <laughs> to be able to find the game by themselves it's kind of over to them at that point but you can help them a little bit so yeah you do want your remote stop to work even if you can't see your dog, whether it's a retrieve or whether it's in a sort of hunting scenario. All right. So then your last question, pointing at what stage should the HBR point? Picking up air scent, but how close to the prey? Would this initially be practiced entirely on leash with no off leash around potential game to prevent the scent leading to hunting, leading to flush and chase? All right. So there's like three questions there. So um, oh, maybe there's two because the second one is like part of the first one. At what stage should the HBR point? Picking up air scent, but how close to the prey? So the dog should point as soon as they know there's definitely game there. So the distance that the dog will point is going to depend on many factors. It's going to depend on the strength of the wind, for example. It's going to depend on how much cover there is. It's going to depend on the land and how undulating it is. It's going to depend on the humidity of the day and whether the humidity is holding the scent down close to the ground or whether the scent is evaporating. It's going to depend on so many different things relating to how the scent is traveling in the air. So this is not about distance, like, because you, I can't, you know, we don't know what the dog is smelling, so we can't say how far away they should be able to smell or shouldn't be able to smell given all these different variables in the real world but the dog should point as soon as they're sure that there's game there now what sometimes happens is the dog is hunting and smells something sense something and comes onto point but the game is um aware <laughs> that there is some rustling undergrowth and approaching dog and tries to sneakily move away out of the area 
And a dog will kind of quite quickly d- determine that this has happened if, if they're experienced. They'll, they'll be able to smell that, okay, this scent is getting a bit stale now, even within a few seconds. This game is moving away from me. It's no longer exactly where I'm pointing. And what happens at that point depends on where you live and what you've trained the dog to do. So in the UK, it'd be quite um, acceptable for the dog to decide for themselves that the game is not where they're pointing anymore and to release themselves from the point, relocate and point and hold the game or just continue to stalk the game um, if it continues to move, but to keep in contact with the game in some way. So I hope that helps. That's kind of <laughs> That's kind of the answer to that one. And by the way, there are so many different ways that this whole thing can play out. It's impossible to describe exactly what should happen. It's really great to go and if you can go and watch some field trials um, or just go and watch HBRs doing HBR stuff, then you'll just kind of get a sense of all of this in a way that's much better than anything I can possibly describe using words on a podcast. So that would be my recommendation. In terms of your last question, would this initially be practiced entirely on leash with no off leash around potential game? Well, it depends on what the game is. So if you know that you're in an area which has a lot of birds and doesn't have much ground game, but it has a lot of birds, then, well, not a lot of birds because that might blow a young dog's mind, but you're, you know you know there are birds there, let's say, but not probably not ground game. Then that, as we've described in the last podcast episode, I think it was the last one, that would be a situation where you could let the dog hunt up for themselves. And, and in terms of it leading to a flush and chase, that's exactly what you want it to lead to at first. You want the dog at first isn't going to do a beautiful point and hold it for minutes while you walk up to them. So the dog's going to come across the game, be like, wow, this, this smells really great. I want to get it. And they're going to go and try to get it. And it's going to fly away and the dog's going to have a little chase on it. And that's perfectly fine. That's what should happen. So as we talked about last time, as the dog's chasing that game, you choose your moment to recall the dog back to you and give them a treat. And if you keep doing that, eventually they're going to realize, hey, there's no point chasing this thing because I don't get it. And what happens after I flush something is my owner calls me and gives me a treat. So I'm just going to cut out the chase bit. and I'm going to start focusing back on my owner after I flush game. At that point, you can then put in your sit. So there's not much of a risk if it's going to be on birds. In fact, it's good. The birds will teach the dog their job. Where the where the problem is, is when you have ground game and that's the situation which is really reinforcing when you've got like the bunny or the hare running away or the fox and the dog just really wanting to chase it. And um, yeah, that's, that's the situation which is really hard because unlike a bird, which goes up in the air, is unavailable, disappears, it's gone. The ground game is there, 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 and it's exciting and it's running away. It's like a big fluffy tug toy, which is going along the ground really fast and the dog just really wants to keep chasing. So that's the situation which is really difficult. And ground game is, you know, what you want to do, there's different ways you can approach this, but one thing which is really effective and yet really simple is to get your dog onto birds, not ground game. So dogs will often have favored um, types of quarry. So they will have like um, stuff that they like, that they think that they're supposed to be there looking for. And you can get dogs which will just ignore or learn to ignore some types of game over others. But particularly like, if you don't ever shoot ground game, for example, if you only shoot birds and quite quickly, the dog will be like, oh, my owner's not into ground game. They're into shooting birds. I'm going to find them some birds because that's what get, that's what gets shot. And that's what I get to put in my mouth and have, back to that thing again, is the bird. And the ground game doesn't really ultimately go anywhere very exciting or successful so through sort of um just the dog getting used to what what the desired um game is really you kind of end up with them like having a fading interest in the ground game the other thing you can do which is also really effective and quite simple, but only really possible. I think we've talked about this kind of stuff in a previous episode, by the way, is hanging out around, for example, bunnies and things with a little puppy. So if the puppy just learns to, you know, be around bunnies and they're not very exciting, I'm just going to hang out here on a rug with your puppy house line on your on your puppy and watch the bunnies come out at dusk and eat their grass and stuff <laughs> and hop around and you and your puppy are just I don't know having a little picnic on the on your blanket together and watching the bunnies do this then you can end up taking a lot of excitement out of bunnies in that way assuming that you don't want to um hunt them in the future for example so 
yeah, that's another approach. So those two ideas are are really quite kind of simple and powerful yet very effective. And then there's the whole sort of sequence of things that you can go through to teach the dog to sit when something is moving fast along the floor away from them, which which is you know you can start with flirt poles, you can you can use tug toys, you can move on to bolting rabbits, and that's a um, something on a piece of elastic which you stretch across the ground for people who don't know what a bolting rabbit is and you release it you release your furry bunny dummy and it flies along the ground really fast and you can set this up somewhere where you're about to come through with your dog before you bring the dog out and so it surprises the dog and you get a chance to practice a steadiness and you know when it's going to happen because you're in control of when that piece of elastic gets released and flies the little bunny along the ground um, so basically there's lots of different ways that you can try and achieve steadiness on ground game, but it's not something that you want to be doing as the first thing. You want to be working on the birds to start with and, you know, focusing on that. Um, so I hope that helps and answers your questions, Morag. Hold the line. So next we've got a question from Ben who says, um, hi Joe, I've just found your podcast and book and I'm really enjoying them. That's good to hear. Thanks for letting me know that. Um, could I ask a question? I have a one year golden retriever, excellent, calm and people loving temperament. She is great at not getting things unless I say she can get it, which means that if I throw a treat away from her to get, she looks to me first to hear get it, then she will go for it. In the clicker retrieve and other exercises, throwing a treat to the dog to get them to move is used frequently. At the moment, I also have to say, get it, so she goes after it. I don't mind doing this. It probably reinforces steadiness, but I notice that this doesn't seem to be a problem in the textbooks. Dogs seem to just go for it. Am I going to create any issues by still having to say, get it, every time I throw a treat for her mid-training exercise? She will take it from my hand if I give it to her direct. She will also eat it if I throw it straight to her mouth, so it's only when I throw it away from her. Thanks again for a great book and podcast, Ben. So... Ben, that's a pretty simple one. So basically, at first, if you have taught your dog that they they need to hear, get it, to go get their treat, then the dog is likely to wait to hear that before they go get the treat. But hopefully, if you click and then say get it, for example, then the dog will start to go off the click because the click will come to predict the get it. So it'll be like a new cue, old cue type of situation, if that makes sense. So, for example, if you you haven't mentioned, I don't think you've mentioned using the clicker there. So I'm just assuming here that you're using the clicker. So, well, you're doing the clicker retrieve. So I assume you're using the clicker. So let's say you are clicking your dog for looking at the bumper on the floor. So the dog looks at the bumper on the floor. You click, you say get it and throw a treat. Um... So you want to say get it before you throw the treat. So you want to click, say get it, and throw the treat. Okay, so just keep doing that, basically. And what will happen after X number of reps is you will click, you'll be about to say get it, and your dog will just go and eat the treat without you having said get it, which is fine. That's um, You can just stop saying get it all the time. I mean, it's not a bad thing to have to say get it. It's just a kind of, it's just a bit of noise, really. It's a bit of like an unnecessary um thing which is happening in your sort of training loop which you don't actually need to have happening so um it's and it's another thing for you to have to think about as a trainer which frankly there's enough stuff to think about as a trainer without having to also remember that when you throw a treat you have to say get it after you've clicked so i think that it's in your interest to try to get rid of this um now if you haven't clicked you can teach the dog if you haven't clicked and you haven't given a reinforcement marker that they shouldn't try to get the treat. So for example, um, I don't know, there's a sort of steadiness exercise that I have in my book and I think in my steady, in my course steady online, where we drop a treat to the floor and when the dog sees the treat drop to the floor, they understand that as a cue to go into a sit. So that means that it's a, it's a cue not to try to get the treat basically until you either pick it up and feed it to them or you release them to eat the treat. So in that situation, you're not clicking. So it's the click which should tell the dog that they've earned the treat and they can go and access the treat. So you want the click to communicate both those things to the dog. And if you are reliant on also having to say, get it, the click isn't communicating both of those things to the dog. Does that make sense? So to get to get around that and to fix this little problem, it's not really a problem, but to fix it, you'll just click and say, get it, and then throw your treat. Does that make sense? And if you keep doing that, after a certain number of reps, you can pretty much guarantee that you'll click. And before the word get it starts to form in your mouth, your dog has run to eat the treat and you won't have this problem. So that's my advice for, for your little situation there. Hope that helps. Hold the line. 
Okay, everybody, that is all for this week. I do want to say for anyone who has stuck it out to the end of the podcast here, that the country that we are moving to is hopefully going to be Ireland. So um, I still can't say exactly um, the fact that we're moving to this house because (laughs) there are still complicated legal things being dealt with by solicitors on both sides. And I think it's looking like we're probably going to resolve all of this and it's all going to be okay and we're going to be able to move. We might end up moving slightly later than we originally planned because there's just a lot of stuff to sort out with the deeds and the boundaries and complicated things like that. But hopefully it's all going to go according to plan. And I'm really excited about that because the house kind of backs directly onto hundreds of acres of moorland and lots of grouse moors. So it's going to be fantastic for the dogs to be there. And there's not any sort of fence really between our our property and the moorland. It's just kind of direct access reaching for hundreds and hundreds of acres. And it's quite rural and not very heavily populated. And uh, I just look forward to all of that space and all those training opportunities and the stuff and potential that we can do, um, the things that we can do, which will be super, super duper great. So um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And just keeping fingers crossed that all goes according to plan and we actually get to move. We're actually supposed to move in January, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen now. It might be a little bit later. We'll see. We will see. Anyway, everybody, have a very good time. And I'm not sure if I'm going to get another podcast episode out before the holiday season. I will try. But if I don't, have a very good holiday season. And I hope that some of the ideas and suggestions for um, gifts or presents that I've made earlier in this episode might be useful for you and your loved ones. So bye-bye for now. Ding 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 